Our lesson today is Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to 23, found on page 3 of your New Testament Pew Bible. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. Listen to the voice of the Spirit speaking to the church. Would you pray with me? Open us, God. Surprise us. Blow through us with your Spirit this morning. We pray in Christ's name, amen. So last week when Clover preached, we heard the story of the day that Jesus tells Andrew and Simon Peter to come and see. Today we have the same story, but instead of from the Gospel of John, we're in the Gospel of Matthew. And instead of saying, come and see, Jesus says to these two fishermen, follow me and I'll make you fish for people. It's interesting how each gospel tells the story a little differently. Who got the quote right? Who knows? The point in both of these stories seems to be more about what happened next. After the invitation, whatever form that invitation takes, the question is always, how will we respond? Will we drop our nets? Will we change our lives? Will we follow him? And I've been wondering what following Jesus really looks like. Does it just mean coming to church on Sundays? Does it, does it mean serving on a committee, reading your Bible more? Or more internally, is it about loving God and loving neighbor? Is it, is it about trusting that God is with us? Is it about knowing that we are God's beloved? Is it about knowing everyone else is too? Is it about all these things and more? What does Jesus have in mind when he says, come and see? A few days ago, I heard a StoryCorps episode with John Lewis. John Lewis is the civil rights leader and congressman from Georgia. And as a boy growing up in Troy, Alabama, he imagined himself someday becoming a pastor. He said his siblings would help round up the chickens so that he could preach to them. But the chickens never called out amen, he said, which disappointed him. 
I could have told him he shouldn't take that personally. Clearly, these chickens were Presbyterian. <laughs> John Lewis never became a pastor because when he was 18 years old, he came across an article about Rosa Parks. And he was so inspired by what she and Dr. King were doing over in Montgomery, 45 miles away, that he wrote a letter to Dr. King. Dr. King wrote back, and he included a round-trip bus ticket so that John could come and meet him. And I don't know what the letter said, but what that letter said was come and see. That encounter changed the whole direction of John Lewis's life. Like Andrew and Simon Peter, he dropped everything to become a part of a new movement. And in those years with Dr. King, he was arrested and he was jailed and he was beaten. But he said that he had come to live by a simple philosophy that when you saw something wrong, you stood up and you spoke up. And my favorite part of the interview with John Lewis was when he recalled how his worried mother would tell him not to get into too much trouble over there with Dr. King in Montgomery. And he would say to her, Mama, it's okay, because I'm getting into good trouble and that he still encourages people after all these years to get into good trouble. Now, when I was a boy, I rarely got into trouble. You know the phrase, goody two shoes? Well, I didn't just have the shoes, I had the shirt and the pants. I had the whole outfit. I mean, there was the time I decided to run away from home. But even then, I wrote a note to my parents telling them where I was going and I'd be back in the morning. <laughs> and there was always a little part of me that was, I don't know, that I, had, I admired the boys who got into trouble. Because I think I recognized even then that getting into trouble, whatever else we might say about it, does require courage. And that if I was honest, I knew my gold star record wasn't completely due to my sainthood. A big part of my good behavior was just that I didn't want to rock the boat. The difference, though, between just plain old trouble and good trouble is that while they both require courage, good trouble requires something else something I'm going to call righteousness. Skipping class or smoking in the bathroom may take guts, but it is in the service to no thing and no one but ourselves. It lacks righteousness. And I know righteousness isn't a word we use very often, unless, of course, we're reading our Bibles, where you can't go two pages without tripping over that word. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, says Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, 
says Paul in his letter to the Romans. The work of righteousness will be peace, and the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever, said the prophet Isaiah. That word appears more than 500 times in our Bible. And it simply means, I think, to be in the service of what is right and holy. And it is my contention that good trouble is the combination of courage with righteousness. It means being brave in the service of what's right. So as we think about what it might mean to follow Jesus, besides our committee meetings and reading our Bible, we might add that to the list. And I know it can be hard to stand for righteousness in a world that isn't so black and white, in a world where just about every issue that we face is complicated. I know it's often hard to sort out exactly what the right thing to do is with immigration or gun laws, global warming, incarceration. From a distance, these things can seem pretty clear that Jesus calls us to work toward a safer world and a fairer world and a world with fewer senseless deaths. But the closer we get to these issues, the more confusing, the more complicated they become. And in the absence of clear right and wrong, good and evil, I think a lot of us, we stay on the sidelines. And I've often wondered what it was like back in the civil rights movement in the 60s. With hindsight, it seemed so obvious what the right side of history was. But I bet especially for white people, it wasn't always so easy to see then. And we all celebrate Dr. King and his boycotts and his protests now, but would I wonder if we would have then I imagine the problems seemed pretty overwhelming and confusing. And so it is today. But that doesn't mean there isn't a right and a wrong side of history. And we can sit on the sidelines while others do the messy work of social change. And when the dust settles, we can celebrate them and honor them and name holidays after them. And we can wait for the next generation of Dr. King's and John Lewis's and Rosa Parks to do what their faith calls them to do. And we can cheer them on as they get into the good trouble that we feel too busy or too tired or too scared to step into. But Jesus said, follow me. And Jesus said, come and see. But as far as I am aware, there is no gospel in which he says, well, let's wait and see. So until then, let's be brave in the service of righteousness. Let's step into the fray of the issues that we care about. Let's step in, even though we know we are, don't have all the answers and we're going to make mistakes and we're going to have disagreements and it's going to be hard and uncomfortable and messy. 
Yes, let's this year get into a little good trouble. Amen? Pretty good. 